right. Well, hello, everyone. As I'm getting settled up here, I'm looking forward to the potluck, particularly because I got to try, I got to try the green bean casserole. <laughs> now you're on the hook. And the stir fry. Where's Edwina? <laughs> Are you going to bring it? She's like, I didn't know I had to bring it. <laughs> wow. Well, guys, um, it's, it's turned into fall, right? <clears throat> Suddenly. It's November 1st. Last night was Halloween. And uh, I don't know about you, but I was outside giving candy to little kids in my neighborhood. I'm guessing that was not what you guys were doing last night. Um, <laughs> but one of my favorite things that I've discovered that I like to do this might put me in the category of a Karen, but I'm going to just, like, admit it to you. Okay. How many of you, wait, how many of you um, went trick-or-treating as a kid? Okay. A lot of you. Okay. Keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. Okay. If you stopped going trick-or-treating when you were in ninth grade or younger, put your hand down. <laughs> okay. How about, like, 11th grade? 11th grade? Uh-oh. <laughs> Okay, I won't even go beyond that. All right. So one of my favorite things to do is to, like, give a hard time to anyone who is, like, over five feet tall who comes trick-or-treating. <laughs> okay, if they're in full costume and they come up and they're, like, trick-or-treat, I'm, like, cool. Have some candy. But I legit had a guy in, like, a sweatshirt and jeans come up to me with a, a bag and just, like, stand there. And I was, like... Hi. <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> I always give them candy. I do. I always give them candy, but I give them a hard time. Another favorite thing to say is, wow, you're a tall trick-or-treater. <laughs> and they laugh. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they, like, curse me after they leave. But I always give them candy, so it's fine. <laughs> but I like to give them a little extra attention because I feel like they, you know, like they, they need a little extra attention from me. <laughs> I'm actually somebody who does not like to get attention myself. I would rather be, um, like, in the background. Um, how many of you guys would, would rather fade into the background rather than be, like, in the center of attention? Yeah, I, I feel like there's society has its, like, standouts, and then there's the, the rest of us. But um, the reason that I bring this up is because tonight we are starting a new sermon series, and... Um, it's on a topic that Jesus brought up that he said about his followers. He said, you are the light of the world. And this sermon series is called Built Different, a city on a hill in a dark world. And Jesus said this about his followers. He said this in Matthew 5, 17. It sounds like an affirming statement, right? He looked out at the people listening and he said, you are the light of the world. It sounds like he was really affirming them, like he thought they have lots of promise. Or like um, maybe they were very successful. They have lots of strength and potential. Or, you know, maybe someone who already attracts attention. So how about you? If you're a Jesus follower tonight, how does that land with you? Jesus said that to you. You are the light of the world. In, on November 1st, 
that might land as overwhelming. It might land as, I don't know about that, maybe that's somebody else. Or it might be exciting, I don't know. Well, let's take a look at what he said in the context of it. Matthew 5, 14 through 16. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So the concept of being people of light runs all the way through Scripture. It's really interesting, actually, when you start paying attention to it. Light is mentioned so often. And we, as God's people, are talked about as people of light or children of light. And even when we think about Jesus, who said he is the light of the world, he turned around and said, you are the light of the world. But what was happening there? Who was Jesus talking to? You know, when he said this, he was talking to a crowd of people who had gathered to listen to what he had to say. These were Israelites. They were Jewish people. Um, who lived in first century Israel. And they were actually not a very promising bunch. They were kind of your run-of-the-mill normal people. They were fishermen, farmers, family members. They had come to see what he had to say. But actually calling them normal is actually kind of generous because they were practically slaves. The reason that I say this is because the Roman government was occupying their country. And so they had soldiers around all the time. And um, the government, the Roman government would tax them into poverty and could basically say, whenever they needed something, hey, you, come over here, do this. And the people would have to do it. I bet that when those people heard Jesus say, you are the light of the world, they were like, what? <laughs> Who are you talking to? <laughs> We're the light of the world. Now, we don't live in the same time that Jesus lived in, obviously. We're not in the same circumstances. But we have some concerns that are relevant to our world that are they're up there, right? I mean, do you ever look around at things and just sort of figure, I'm just going to keep my head down. I'm going to try to find, I'm going to try to get my degree. I'm going to try to find some happiness. Hopefully I can live out a good life before the world, you know, the water runs out and, you know, whatever is going to happen to the world. It's like you say, I don't know that there's a lot of hope for the world, but especially not for me. How am I going to provide that hope? But Jesus said something to his people about being the light. And then he said that being a city on the hill was meant to draw attention to itself and not be hidden. This is something that's repeated throughout Scripture, and so it's important for us to get to the bottom of what it means, because clearly he was trying to tell us what it said. What does light actually mean? It's alluded to that maybe it means, pro or I've already alluded that it maybe it means promise or success or potential. It, but let's think about light itself. What does light do? Light illuminates. It clarifies. If we turn the lights off in this room and I said, everybody get out, you'd probably trip over someone or something because you can't see in the dark. Light makes us able to see. 
It brings warmth, hope, safety. And so if the original people Jesus talked to were not super holy, they were not super successful, maybe they were not super faithful, then what does it mean for us to be people of light? And what did it mean for them to be people of light? So in the next three weeks, we're going to discuss this concept. We're going to look at it from different angles. We are the light of the world. A city on a hill. Not we will someday be once we get our act together. But he said, no, you are the light of the world. Presently, what does that mean for us as a community and as individuals? So tonight, what I want to explore is the idea that as followers of Jesus in our present state, we are people of hope. Being people of light means that we're people of hope. We live in this world where things go wrong. There's pain and tears. And they exist alongside joy and happiness. But we are not meant to be people marked by anxiety, fear, and depression. We're not really meant to be fragile and unsure and unsafe. But if we learn to live in the hope that Jesus gave us, we will not be able to hide the light that he says that we are. It will naturally come out of us. We have some promises to live by. And if we're intentional, if we lean into them, we can get them from, the, from this page in the Bible into our heads and into our hearts. And we can let our light shine. If we live with hope, our light will shine. Does that sound too simple or too naive, too idealistic? Hear me out for the next 20 minutes and see what you think when we're done, okay? We, you and I, Chi Alpha, and really every believer on this campus, as God's beloved people, we have hope that's only available through Jesus. There are many people who don't have this hope. They don't have it because they can only get it through him. And yet he desperately wants them to have it. He has a purpose for us on this campus. But do we have to be a superstar? <laughs> do we have to be perfect? Do we have to do it ourselves? He said, be a light and let it shine. That's what we're going to look at tonight. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 4. And we're going to dive a little bit deeper. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. All right. I'm going to pray real quick. Lord, would you just um, speak to us tonight? Teach us, Lord, how to be light. Lord, you said that we already are, but help us to know how do we shine? How do we let it shine? <laughs> and how do we fulfill uh, what you've called us to do? We open our hearts to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we're jumping into the letter uh, that Paul wrote to the church in, Corinth or in Corinth. And, um, you know, Paul, you think, he's an apostle. He wrote like a third of the New Testament. He's probably like kind of a successful guy. However, as he's writing this book, he's actually, um, it's actually kind of a fragile state for him. Because this letter was actually the third letter that he wrote to the Corinthians. Because the church in, in Corinth, he had had kind of a shaky relationship with them. 
And we don't have the second letter because, well, I don't know why we don't have it. But basically, it, he refers to it, and he, and, and he talks about how they've had, like, this rough relationship. And this the, and the third letter, he's basically saying, hey, we love each other. I know we love each other, but um, I just want to make sure. <laughs> it's, kind of, it's kind of a lot of what he says. On top of that, as we're going to see, he's actually um, traveling, and he and his companions are having a lot of difficulties that are going on. Okay, so we're going to start in verse 4. It says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God said, Let light shine out of darkness. Made his, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. So Paul's talking about his work here. His life work is to preach the gospel in places where they've never heard it before. He wanted to plant churches. He says that, it, that some will not see and some cannot see because there are spiritual forces at work on both sides but that God initiated shining this light to all people. And he's kind of like starting with us, although it was before him too. <laughs> but he's saying, like, God, shine, shine the light in my heart, and now I want to shine it in others. Paul's talking about salvation here. When he's talking about God shining the light, Jesus came, he lived among humanity, he was completely human, and yet he was the Son of God. He experienced all the temptations and trials that every human experiences, and yet he didn't sin. He didn't offend God. He stayed in relationship with him. And he loved people. He healed them. He taught them. He gave them value. He forgave them. And then he died for their sins and was raised to life. When he was taken from the earth, the Holy Spirit was given to every believer, everyone who followed him. This is the light that God shined into our hearts and wants to shine in others as well. The concept here is clear. Light is not meant to be hidden, but to be shown. And God initiated it. He's the first one who did it. It's the work of God himself, and he expects his people to be part of it. And if we live with hope, our light will shine. So we've got a job, right? And if we're in God's will, it will all go smoothly, right? Let's keep reading. <laughs> so, verse uh, 8, I think, or 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perse perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down but not destroyed. Okay, so Paul moves into this picture of treasures inside, um, inside a jar of clay. And so he's, um, oh, I just dropped something. Hold on. Wait, what, oh, <laughs> this is just, I just keep this in my Bible sometimes if I'm like, it's just my, um, just my engagement ring. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, sometimes I just take it off, and then I put it in this little, like, doggy bag thing because it's, like, bothering me or whatever. I'm kidding, you guys. I don't keep my ring in a doggy bag. This is my ring. <laughs> this, is, this is probably one of my most treasured items that I own because my husband gave it to me, and it means a lot to me. I would not, not keep it in a doggy bag. You know what this bag is for, right? Um, <laughs> however, God gives us a treasure in jars of clay. He says that we, what Paul is saying here is that we are like jars of clay. Now, jars of clay are not like this. They were, to the people then, um, they were like everyday containers. Imagine like the little containers that you can get at the store that are kind of sort of disposable, like they'll sort of melt in your, in your dishwasher if you put them in there or whatever. Like they used them all the time. Jars of clay, they used them all the time. They were cheap. They were available. They were kind of fragile. And so Paul is saying we are kind of fragile, kind of short-lived, kind of everyday vessels. But guess what's inside? A treasure. A treasure. This is what he's saying. We think that we're jars of clay, but God has put a treasure inside of us. Paul moves, um, and so basically he says, okay, so this is my dumb il illustration, but, um <laughs> but basically it's him saying that you are a vessel that treasure is, is stored in. Paul was not saying that you're worthless. He was saying that as we, as normal and as we, uh, as normal as we are and as we perceive ourselves to be, we are the container for God's power on earth. We are jars of clay. Humanity. We are weak. When we think about the, the time of our lives, 80 years maybe, maybe 100, it's minuscule compared to eternity right? But what is, in, what is inside us changes everything. That is what gives us hope. The God of the heavens lives within us. He created us in his love, and he wants to be enveloped. He wants us to be enveloped in that love. So the reason that we can be a city on a hill, the reason that we can be the light of the world is because it is God's work in us first, not something that you did. He did something in you. You received it. And so you are the light of the world. Amen. His all-surpassing power lives inside of you. We're unworthy vessels, but wow, maybe, maybe we're wrong about our worth, right? He thinks that we're worthy of his presence. And if we think that this, if we, if we can keep this first in our mind, we can remember that it's not by our skills or our goodness or our spiritual maturity, but it's by his all-surpassing all power. It will be a source of joy and hope for ourselves. We will live with hope. Okay, so now Paul goes on to describe what's happening. We already read it, verses 8. He says, I've been hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We've heard this so many times that I think sometimes we sort of gloss over it. Um, and 
And yet, you know, it's kind of like, well, I can relate. I can relate. I feel a little hard-pressed these days, right? And you might think about it, and you might think, okay, what immediately comes to mind? Maybe academics, maybe just figuring out your life, you know, like, what am I doing with my life? I feel like that is um, something that people worry about. I feel like um, maybe relationships have, have not gone well. If you go a little deeper, though, man, you can start to spiral when you start thinking about things that might be causing anxiety. We are hard-pressed, and yet... Paul, Paul was pretty hard-pressed because we actually know what was going on in his life because he tells us in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians. He, um, he starts to list things out, and I won't read the whole thing, but basically he was imprisoned, he was beaten several times, he endured hunger, he was literally shipwrecked, like he was on a ship in the sea and it broke apart, and then <laughs> like... That's stressful, <laughs> right? <laughs> now, I tell you this at the risk of being, you know, of it sounding like, guys, stop it. You're not stressed out. I don't mean to say, <laughs> to like compare him to us and say like, oh, we're a bunch of lightweights, right? We do have things that, that cause us anxiety. There is a reality that you are experiencing something significant. And... You know, Paul's life was in danger because of the sake of the gospel. He was going into places where his life was threatened because of what he was saying and doing. Now, we as Christians, we know that what we believe holds some sensitivity out in the world, right? It's nice to come to a place like this where we can go like, wow, these are my people. I know it's kind of a safe place for me to express my faith. But when we are in the world, it can be stressful to be a Christian. Um, but it's not to the level of persecution, right? We're not physically in danger. Um, but it's, but it, the reality is that it's something significant to reveal your faith. And even when you begin to invite others into it, sometimes what's great is when people are hungry. And they're like, whoa, really? You believe that? Tell me more about that. That's amazing. But oftentimes, what, you know, what might happen is somebody might sort of just decide to ignore us. Um, maybe there would be a little bit of pushback. In a really bad case scenario, there's shame, you know, shaming. And, um, and so sometimes I think that causes us to just say, I'm just going to keep my head down and try to avoid attention. I'm just going to try to blend in. But that's not what being a city on a hill can do. Because a city on a hill can't be hidden. It's there. Right? And Jesus said no one lights a lamp and then covers it with a bowl. He says, let your good deeds shine before humanity. So how do we deal with this? How do we deal with the disappointment, the stress, the overwhelm, the, the pushback, the shame? How do we find the hope? that lets our light shine. Well, I think we do it the same way Jesus did. Because remember, Jesus was tempted in every way. Let's read verses 10 and through 12. Because this is what Paul says too. It says, We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death 
for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Okay, when I first read that, I was like, what? (laughs) Sometimes when I read Paul, I'm like, Paul, can you say it straight? (laughs) So for a better explanation, I'm going to read you a paraphrase by the Greek scholar um, Eugene Peterson. He kind of puts this in different words, but it's the same concept. Here's what he says. What they did to Jesus, they do to us. Trial and torture, mockery and murder. What Jesus did among them, he does in us. He lives. Our lives are at constant risk for Jesus' sake, which makes Jesus' life all the more evident in us. While we're going through the worst, you're getting in on the best. Yes, they were putting their lives at risk, yes. And, they, and yet they knew that the power at work inside them, this all-surpassing power in, a jar, in jars of clay, right, was, um, was hope and was life. They trusted that God was doing work through them, even though they were experiencing these terrible difficulties. In fact, in the coming verses, they say how amazing it was that they put their lives on the line. And as they did this, more and more people were going to be able to have the same hope that they had. And have the same relationship with God that they had because of the death that they were experiencing. They weren't actually dying, but that they, the the persecution and the suffering that they were experiencing. And so they were giving God praise for that. And then they even say how temporary the whole situation is in light of eternity. They're like, you know what? Yeah, it's bad now. But someday, someday it's going to be amazing in heaven. And really, that is our eternal hope, right? That is, our, that is our main hope, that someday we will find thorough and amazing rest in heaven with God. This is hope embodied. So how do we live this way? He says in the verses above that they do to us what they did to Jesus. But we will do what Jesus did. He lived in life, faith, love. He lived as a servant to others. He forgave. He was obedient to God. He knew his sonship to God. And he got alone with him regularly to be reminded of it, to let it seep into his heart. Sonship. That means he knew that God loves him no matter what. There's something about this that changes everything. You know, I used to feel like, I grew up in church, and I used to feel like, um, you know, when I thought about God loving me, it was like, well, yeah. It's like my parents love me. Like, of course. It's not a big deal. Like, why is that (laughs) life-changing? And yet I didn't understand that, that it was a personal love. That it was a that it was something that that I could understand in relationship with him. There's a really specific time that happened to me actually um, that God really powerfully helped me understand uh, his love for me. It was during my Chi Alpha internship, and um, I went to four years of Bible college. Um, <coughs> excuse me, and. Um, 
through those four years, I learned a lot of theology and I learned a lot about the Bible. But my relationship with God really waned. By the time I was a senior, I felt pretty much like a fraud. Like, uh, I was like, I just, I just don't know if I have faith anymore. And, um, and, but I was like in Bible college and I was preparing to do ministry. And I was, and so God was starting to heal some of that by my second semester right before um, graduation, starting to give me some hope. But um, I was, I had a problem because what I had done through Bible college was I had compared myself to the people around me. And I had seen some of the things that they were like and that they experienced. And I was like, well, that never happened to me. And I don't have those skills or gifts or experiences. And so I started asking God for them. And it wasn't happening the way that I was expecting it to. And I started to think, and I mean, this was like a couple years. And I wasn't really talking to anybody about it. That was probably part of the problem. But (laughs) some of it helped. But I started to really believe that God thought I wasn't good enough, that I should wait, that maybe, you know, I just wasn't mature enough, um, whatever. I never vocalized this stuff. It was just inside my head, and it would just spin and spin. And became like I didn't even realize I was believing it. It became my norm in my head. But he was starting to he was so he was starting to to show me a different way. But anyway, it was at the very beginning of our internship, our CMIT program, and um, our campus pastor preached a sermon on Galatians two about how Galatians is all about how we try to work our way to God, and God is like, no, you can't do that. I already love you. Like, do you know, girls? Okay, you're gonna maybe relate to this a little more, but. I had a group of friends in middle school, and it was co- like the constant, like, are you mad at me? Are you secretly mad at me? And then, yeah, right? And, and you're like, after a while, you're like, no, stop it. <laughs> you know? And I feel like God is like that. Sometimes we do that to God. Like, we're trying to earn his love, and he's like, oh, I love you. What are you doing? Like, I, I already loved you before you even knew I was around. Anyway. I listened to this sermon, and I just, I knew, I, like, I, this was not new to me. I had studied Galatians before, but suddenly God was like, you're doing this, and I love you. And I was like, what? And so I don't even remember what happened that night. I know I went to pray at the altar, and I remember that he just sealed that promise inside of my heart. And I remember that he, it was like, it was just like freedom. I suddenly knew, kind of like, you know how I read earlier that like, um, it says that um, the God of this age veils, our, veils the hearts. It was almost like I had a veil over my heart just in this one area. And the Holy Spirit just like ripped it down and was like, nope, I love you. Love you. Even to the place where, and this may sound weird to some of you, but it's what I experienced I actually felt like there was something pouring over my head <laughs> to the point where I was like, am I wet? <laughs> I thought someone was, but it was like the Lord saying, I love you. I don't know if, anyway, I don't have, I haven't had experiences like that in other times. Um, probably I could count them on my hand where God was still very present. So I don't want to give you 
like the impression that you should speak the same thing. I think God knows your heart, and he knows what you need to know. But what I do know is that if I hadn't been in that service, and if I hadn't gone for prayer um, and responded and given myself that time and that space, that God wouldn't have been able to do that in my life because I, I would have been, my brain would have been somewhere else. And after that experience, I couldn't help but shine because it changed me. Just like this, this series is called Built Different, I was built different. I, I, was, I was transformed from the inside. This is why we encourage you guys every week, you know, come and pray. Come and pray with someone. You might be like, oh, again, I don't, I'm not going to do it tonight, uh, you know. <laughs> but when else do we have time set aside where we're in a room full of people who are seeking God and God's spirit can come and pray and we just put our phones away and we just put our work aside for a minute and we just go, God, I'm going to give you some attention. It's why we have prayer every morning so that you can come and be in God's presence and, and just listen to what he has to say. This is what Jesus did. He, he went regularly away by himself. If you look through the Gospels, you'll find it. And he listened to God, and he heard God tell him, you are my beloved. And because of that, he was able to come out of that space, and nothing could hurt him because he knew, God loves me. I'm the beloved. When we understand God's love for us in, this quiet, in the quiet place, we can come back into the presence of others as our true self. We can be vulnerable. We, can, we're, we're, we, can, we don't even have shame anymore. Another author, or a favorite author of mine, Henry Nowen, explains the freedom of knowing that you are God's beloved in this way. He says that after we go back into the world, when we spend time with God and we're like, oh, God, you love me, I can't believe it, you know? <laughs> and we go back into the world, but he says, there are many voices speaking loudly. He, they say, prove that you are the beloved. Prove that you're worth something. Prove that you have any contribution to make. Do something relevant. Be, be sure um, that you make a name for yourself. At least you have some power. Then people will love you, and then people will say you're wonderful, you're great. These voices are so strong in the world. These were the voices Jesus heard right after he heard, you are my beloved. Another voice said, prove that you are the beloved. Do something. Change these stones into bread. Be sure you're famous. Jump from the temple and you will be known. Grab some power so that you can have real influence. Don't you want some influence? Isn't that why you came? Jesus said, no, I don't have to prove anything. I'm already the beloved. And in this way, we're free from the criticism of others, but also to see that others are loved by God and to love them too. That is where the light comes out and shines without even our efforts because we know who we are in God, right? As we shine our light and we let it be seen, we don't have to be afraid and hide who we are. Our weakness is made perfect in God's strength. So you may be wondering, okay, Jen, this is great, but what, I don't know, what's the practical What's the practical takeaway here? What do you want me to do with this information? <laughs> right? 
Well, hopefully, you'll be encouraged that God wants you to live a life of hope. I spoke about not believing that I was enough, and that might be something that you all experience, but maybe you experience something else that's keeping you from hope. I know, I know all of us experience anxiety and fear, and those are the big ones. Believing that you, maybe believing that you just have to grin and bear something, um, that you ask God to take something away from you, and, and he's not doing it, and so I guess I just got to grin and bear it, or I just got to suffer. Um, God has many ways that he works, and sometimes that way is by doing a work in us and not by what we're asking him to do. So a very practical way for you to respond to God is this. This is a prayer. You could say, God, I see that you called us the light of the world. And you said not to cover it. I am afraid. Or maybe I'm anxious or I'm doubtful. You can fill in the blank there about this. You can be honest with God, right? But I want to trust you. I want to open my heart and my, my mind to be taught by you. Will you please teach me? Ask him to teach you and open your heart truly. Say, God, I'm willing to hear what you have to say. And then be quiet in his presence. You know, put your phone away. Journal, maybe. Pray, process your thoughts. Meditate on scriptures that speak about God's love for you, his work in you, memorize scripture that say these things because we have to, remember how I said my brain had normalized something? Like that I, what, we have to, we have to reconfigure our brains. <laughs> and so memorizing scripture that talks about God's love for us and who we are in him. Yes, it is about what happens here tonight, yes, but it's also about what we do going forward every day. Consistency is better than just what happens tonight. And so taking time to be in his presence, to put away our phone or whatever's distracting us, and he will grow you in freedom from fear of showing who you are. Because when you know that you are the beloved, then you have freedom to shine. Because we are people of hope, we can let our light shine. We don't have to hide it. Amen. So in that spirit, we're going to take five minutes. I'm going to give you this chance to spend time in God's presence. So here's what I want you to do. This is how I want to end our time together. Mike's going to come and play softly. And um, we can live as God's people of hope, as his beloved people. And we're free to let our light shine. So one way to access that hope is to let it, and to let it seep into our whole being and into our minds is to meditate on truth. So what I want you to do now is put your phone away, put all your stuff away if you want to. You can find a comfortable spot in the room if you want. Um, and we're going to take, we're just going to give God our full attention for the next five minutes. I'm going to read some scriptures slowly, and I want you to meditate on them. You can close your eyes. 
Um, if you fall asleep, you fall asleep. I'm not worried about it. Apparently, sometimes one of my other favorite authors says sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is take a nap. So, <laughs> but <laughs> but I hope that that some of this, what I'm going to read, is something that um, when something catches your ear, that is sometimes the Holy Spirit saying, "This one is for you. This one's for you." This one's for you. And so listen to that. And maybe that's the one thing that you're going to take away and meditate on this week. Um, or maybe it's going to be a lot of things, because <laughs> these are good ones that I picked out, you guys. Um, all right. So go ahead and close your eyes. Let's, let's um, invite the Holy Spirit. And I'm just going to read these slowly. And we're going to let him speak to our hearts. <laughs> 